Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books and Asian American Studies podcast, a podcast of the New Books Network. I am Chris Patterson, a co-host of the network, and I'm here today to have a conversation with Tara Fickle, who is author of the book, The Race Card, From Gaming Technologies to Model Minorities, published by New York University Press in 2019. She has agreed to conduct a dual interview with me, where I will ask her questions about her book, and she will ask me questions about my book, which is also about video games and Asian American studies, titled Open World Empire, Race, Erotics, and the Global Rise of Video Games, also published by New York University Press and within the same series, Postmillennial Pop, edited by Karen Tongson and Henry Jenkins. Out of respect to our shared interest in games and play, we're going to try something a bit more experimental, I guess what we could call an interview in co-op mode. We will begin with self-introductions, then we will launch right into the game, where each of us will take turns playing interviewer with the goal of having a broader conversation about various concepts that both both of our books play with. So, Tara, how are you? Are you feeling up for this? <laughs> I am. Thanks, Chris. So we're going to begin with uh, self-introductions, and Tara will go first. So, Tara, can you tell us uh, what your book is about and how you came to write it? Yeah, absolutely. So The Race Card is a book that really came out of my interest in thinking about how racial stereotypes about Asians and Asian Americans were often not only constructed through, but also contested through the language of games and play. So there's stereotypes that we're familiar with about being allergic to fun, being unplayful, robotic, workaholic. But those same stereotypes and those same ideas were also being taken up and reworked in Asian American aesthetic productions. So I started by thinking about how games were constantly appearing, not just as content in Asian American literature, although there was a lot of that, whether gambling or mahjong or poker or video games that were less often talked about, but also as tropes or formal allegories for the Asian American experience, whether immigration, assimilation, racism, interpersonal struggles, um, economic precarity. So I started becoming interested in the language of games as these sort of formal structures of risk and rationality, and especially relevant in an age of neoliberalism and Asian American imagined as a kind of ideal neoliberal subject. 
And that grew to an interest in how those structures were racialized and how that was expressed in a whole range of media, including, of course, games themselves, but also in policies and political decisions that would seem to have nothing on the surface to do with games, like the Japanese-American incarceration or Chinese exclusion or the model minority myth. So this book, The Race Card, was the product of that exploration into all the different ways that those kind of angles of this racialized game imaginary coalesced over the last century and a half into this broader phenomenon that I call ludo-orientalism. And now, turning to you, um, can you tell us a little bit about what your book says and how you came to write it? <laughs> yes, I can. Um, so as, uh, as I stated in the uh, introduction, uh, my book is called Open World Empire Race, Erotics and the Global Rise of Video Games. Um, and I try in the book to see games uh, is on the very first like sentence as the main artistic expression of empire today, or at least what I call the open world empire, which is um, a huge but actually not all that new of an argument. But I argue later and throughout the book that games reveal these contemporary divisions of technological ability, mastery, uh, labor, racialization. Um, particularly in their function and their way of being seen as an Asian or Asiatic, as I call it, Asiatic commodity. And I argue that in order to apprehend games as uh, products or as being able to tell us about empire um, and as Asiatic, uh, that we should be able to play them erotically. Um, and that will give us a window into these other themes. Um, and by erotics, I don't mean like um, to see games as ideological narratives that are trying to compel us to you know, be more imperial or violent or militaristic or something like that, but to understand games as playthings that afford new passions, pleasures, desires, and attachments, and that also help us place grave attention on our own positions in the world and make us consider our power over other people. Um, and so that's what the book is about. Um, and it's kind of the simple 150 word uh, abstract um, that you have to write for these kind of things. <laughs> That's fascinating. Um, and I think a real point of connection for us, because I think both of our books could be called sort of formally playful, particularly in terms of their organization and their structure. So I love really, for example, how for scholarly epigraphs, you'll quote Scorpion from Mortal Kombat alongside Sedgwick. And your titles, too, are very interesting. So you're using sort of back and forward slashes to create these sort of triptych structures like author, auteur, Asian, or plunge, dread, vulnerability. And I wonder if you could say a bit about your inspiration and intention behind this kind of form play, especially as it relates to the content of the book. Yeah, and I, I've, I love this question, especially that you're asking it, because your book also <laughs> does a kind of loop, looping kind of structure. But I, I mm -hmm. suppose you could say there are, are multiple loops, whereas in my book, I try to keep to the one... Um, death loop, I guess, of just reading the same thing over, uh, where I start with um, focusing more on Asia and the Asiatic and also end with that. Um, but the, the, the triptych structure that you point out, I think that was me trying to, um, you know, not incorporate into, e into either a binary form of just having the two things or having it seem like it was a progressive form from one idea to the next so that once you're going, moving forward, you're then moving backward. And it's just tries to articulate this kind of consistent movement among these ideas. Um, doesn't really make sense without an example, I suppose. <laughs> so I'm looking at my book. Uh, so like the first chapter that you said, like is called global game, but then 
the um, three parts are race, play, and intimacy. And those, the kind of the whole point of that chapter is that those three things are very difficult to think about in isolation. Mm-hmm. And so I like to think of the chapter as kind of oscillating back and forth between race and play and intimacy. And I think it goes like that through um, through every chapter of the book. And so it, it is a bit uh, playful and it's also trying to be, you know, something that to, again, try to de-gamify in some ways rather than see it as a progress to winning something or understanding something. Sometimes the movement itself is the point. <laughs> yeah, it sounds a bit trippy, <laughs> but um, I could accuse you of the same thing of being a bit trippy <laughs> um, because your book is also quite um, different in the way that your chapters are structured as dice. Um, and so, uh, which is really cool just looking at like as headings and so on. Uh, and then you talk in the intro about how they are, I don't, I don't think you use the word loops, but how they connect in the way a die connects in the, its opposite side to equal seven. So one and six, two and five, three and four. Um, and so that that's even trippier, I think, than what I'm doing. Um, and so you'll have to explain yourself there, what's going <laughs> on with that. And um, I've, I've heard you explain parts of it before too, but I'm also curious, like, what, is there a content, what's the content kind of form of it? What's the playful form of it? Yeah. And before I answer that, I also wanted to say what I really appreciated um, and what your um, format of the headings and the chapter titles made me think of with the use of the slash was um, David Plumbilia's formulation of Asian America with the slash between it instead of a hyphen. And I think this was in the late 90s. And I remember finding that formulation really um, influential and inspirational to think about not only as an alternative to the hyphen or the blank space, um, but as itself a sign of what I think he thinks of as he talks about the solidus as a kind of constant slippage in between, as well as a kind of um, constantly perceived and refused relationship between those two words. So even if you weren't recalling that directly, I found that a really um, productive way to think about the relationship between you know where your book is fitting into a broader scheme of Asian American studies. Yes, yes. Slips and slides. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a person of both slips and slides. Yeah. Um, so I guess to say something about um, about the dice. So the, the backstory about the dice was this was uh, me becoming very interested in the role that dice play um, really centrally in all sorts of games, um, especially gambling games. But as we know, they, they play a role um, and multiple roles in games. And for me, what was really striking is how this little instrument is itself kind of a creating a kind of internal narrative, a kind of self-contained, logical, sort of almost a social system. So on the one hand, they provide this perceived authority um, as a kind of impartial machine of generating chance. But also, as you pointed out, with the adding um, of opposite sides up to seven, a kind of secondary logic that they impose um, in this internally Um, self-sense-making system. And so I got especially interested in how that adding up happened and in what's called the chirality of dice, so a term that comes from chemistry to talk about the what's called the left or right-handedness, the orientation of um, molecules. And so learning about the way that in a six-sided dice, so, you know, if you unfold a die into a two-dimensional form that forms a little T structure, you'd find that there are two ways to build that die, right? Everything else stays the same, the one, two, five, and six, but you could place the three or the four on the left or right side. Um, It would still, you know, they would still be opposite one another. 
And what was interesting for me to learn about this, this language of chirality is that the handedness really tends to correspond to location. So almost every dice that you're likely to buy, you know, let's say here in the States or in North America for use in board games are right-handed dice. But in Asia, especially East Asia, the prevailing kind of dice that you'll get, you know, like what the Mahjong said, are usually left-handed. And so to me, that was kind of a light bulb moment as an illustration of how games give us different ways of thinking about cultural binaries, Orientalism specifically, um, as a different way of kind of orienting ourselves to ideas of chance and randomness and ways of organizing the world and creating sort of self-enclosed systems. And then in terms of how those numbers correspond to the six chapters of the book, I found it useful to kind of take advantage of that two-part organization logic. So, you know, you have the chronological progression of the book from uh, it's about the 1880s to the early 21st century. But the ways that the, the one and the six and the two and the five connect or the way that I may make them add up is through that same logic of sort of complementary antithesis or negative analogy that I see as really central to the logic of, of how Orientalism works, what makes it so powerful. Um, so, for example, this can mean looking at narratives constructed by the U.S. government and media about Asian Americans as model minorities, and specifically as these sort of heroic gamblers and risk takers in chapter three, and then flipping it around and looking at the other side of both the Atlantic and the Pacific, where theorists like Jan Huizinga and um, Roger Calois in the Netherlands and in France were creating these taxonomies of games um, that are very influential today still by constructing the West as this realm of rugged competition and then mystifying the East as uh, more about auspiciousness and fortune and, and what they were calling cyclical versus linear evolution. And that's chapter four. Um, and in both cases, you know, the identity of the East and the West or the model minority versus other minorities or versus, in this case, working class whites are constructed through and against each other as complements and antitheses. So for me, um, and this goes back to what you were saying about the role of gamification, um, gamifying the, the book um, in that sense was kind of an experiment in thinking about how gamification, which has often you know, been taken in game studies to task for being a kind of dangerous, commodified, um, net negative. And certainly it has been used in all these sorts of exploitative, coercive ways, um, rather like the structure of race itself. Thinking about how that gamification can both limit and also expand our thinking um, about these seemingly non-game contexts. So you coin this term Asiatic as a way to describe sort of what happens when Asia or Asianness is rendered virtual and what you call, um, quote, a style or form recognized as Asian-ish, but that remains adaptable, fluid, and outside the authentic and authentic binary. Um, so I find this a really useful term for describing, especially the kind of indeterminacy of aesthetic expressions and games um, and digital media. So can you expand a little more on this term, sort of say where it came from um, and how it can be used? Yeah, and I, I feel like we're really in conversation here with how things are growing out of Orientalism or that we're trying to kind of assess, you know, the, the ways that Orientalism in some ways works now or has worked like with Ludo-Orientalism um, through other discourses that aren't really even about Asia ostensibly, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so like you and I are also working on a anthology together among other projects. <laughs> so mm -hmm. like, I, we've discussed 
before, like how these two concepts kind of relate, Ludo-Orientalism and Asiatic and Orientalism and other <laughs> things out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wrote down, I've, I've written down like many times, like how, like one sentences where we can use them both. But so Ludo-Orientalism, oh, so Orientalism, I guess we could see as discourses about, you know, the quote unquote Orient, and they're usually quite authenticating. Mm-hmm. Um, and of the, uh, let's see, the, the pitch, the, um, the catch, as you might call it, <laughs> is that these are really about the West, right? Um, they're really about Western modernity um, and so on. And so, and their audience is usually Western or white. Um, and Ludo-Orientalism, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, um, are, are discourses about games or about gaming, um, game-like things that are built upon, or like the catch in this case is that they are built upon Orientalist myths. Does that sound kind of right? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. For me, little Orientalism, this is kind of speaking to that um, oscillation between the two parts of the book, is thinking about how, let's say, the language of games is used as a way of making sense of or racializing um, what is seen as Asian, whether a place or a people or a thing. Um, And at the same time, how ideas about Asians get wrapped up um, with games, as in that kind of um, creation of a taxonomy of games that I was telling about that that actually informs how we even define what a game is, even though it doesn't seem to have uh, any sort of explicitly Asiatic content. Um, And so to go back then to your question about the Asiatic, um, I feel like I'm, I'm in some ways building off of a bit of Ludo-Orientalism and Orientalism, Techno-Orientalism, but also trying to um, uh, think a bit, uh, how do we, how does this happen without discourse itself or without um, expertise, um, either in gaming, in in whatever discourse, in games or in in the quote-unquote Orient, um, basically without authenticity, without relying upon authenticity. Um, and so Asiatic as a term was kind of just a casual way of, of people talking about these things or of Asian Americans specifically talking about styles and forms that white people seem to like and just took part in without ever um, having an awareness that it was Asian. Um, but now it's just everywhere, right? Like the, um, especially in digital media with um, like Steve Jobs being so um, tied to, you know, his whole philosophy coming from South South Asia and then his minimalist aesthetics coming from Japan. Um, and so in the digital age, it feels like it, so much now is, is Asiatic. Um, and so I had to kind of think, I wanted to think critically about it. But then when I started talking about it to my students and presenting it at conferences, um, the pushback I got with mostly was that I was being too critical, um, that a lot mm-hmm. of people, um, even like Asian Americans um, and other minority groups uh, played these games that had, that were, I was calling Asiatic um, in quite queer and different ways. And then I realized that's, that's how I've been playing them as well, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and that there's something about Asiatic style and form because it doesn't um, push you to become, to think about it in terms of authenticity or expertise. Um, that is also allows you to be a bit playful and to act in ways and perform in ways that are quite outside of the kind of normative white spaces. Um, and that was something that I thought was interesting, that um, this is a space kind of created through this hybrid sense of Asia, North America, Asianness, and whiteness. Um, but that also allows forms of difference to emerge. That basically where that went um, by the time of writing the book. 
It seems to me too that um, that both of us have found Said's idea of imaginative geography um, of Orientalism as a form of, of imaginative geography, and for me, um, sort of Ludo Orientalism is a way of attending to how maps, which are always central to the project of Orientalism, of course, um, have themselves become a sort of a genre or plaything um, such that location-based gaming, um, especially through, let's say, you know, augmented reality games, um, and I talk about this in relation to Pokemon Go, um, have themselves become a source of, um, of pleasurable play and how they look increasingly indistinguishable with um, the same technologies that we use, like, you know, Google Maps or Apple Maps to navigate the world. Um, so it's interesting how, um, to, uh, to me at least, I see uh, the kind of the dash between Ludo and, and Orientalism, a way of sort of continuing to update and expand that term because it's just so rich and generative. The geographies, the imaginative geographies and the mapping um, are quite important to both our projects, yeah. <laughs> Especially when you're discussing Pokemon Go and in my discussions as well of um, Oceana and the what Karen Kaplan kind of terms as the more imperial gaze um, of the aerial, aerial view. Um, mm -hmm. And what, I mean, what, I think what we're both kind of dealing with with the imaginative geographies is that for Said, I believe that he was always discussing them as producing distance or dramatizing distance right. and difference. Um, whereas we're living in a time where that it feels like that's still happening, but with like trans-Pacific studies and other like archipelagic forms and other ways of looking at um, spaces, that these things are coming together in ways like both intellectually in the in the academy and in things like video games. Uh, where the distance between these things are at least perceived as they're almost dr dramatized as as close together as opposed to distant. Yeah, it's really a way to kind of attend to the way that Orientalism has kind of gone underground or sort of been made virtual um, so that it's at once kind of everywhere and nowhere. Um, and I think that um, sort of broadening the scope of Asian American studies to um, try to, you know, create some... Um, some theoretical scaffolding for for grabbing onto that was certainly one thing that I was hoping for when I um, was conceptualizing the book. Well, and what as you point out in your book too, the um, in your readings of Asian American literature, I've kind of misrepresented your book a bit. Like the first half is <laughs> is much more focused on uh, literature and and history, whereas the second half is more focused on games um, as mm -hmm. we would see them. Um, but in that first half. Uh, I think we have a tendency to read a lot of those works as pretty like Asian American within the binds of whatever that um, tradition of Asian American literature is. Um, where, whereas, as you show, like a lot of the um, desires to kind of see Asian American identity as em empowered and as you know, and and so on, has um, in some ways covered up some of the realities. Right, that um, mm -hmm. the association with gambling. Um, at least in the like late 19th century, um, was part of you know the the way of life of a lot of the the migrants, mm -hmm. um, and yes, it was used as a kind of racist stereotype. Um, but there was also like you know if we just discount the idea that gambling is bad or is an inherent evil, then we can might maybe see it in a very different way. And that you also go into the kind of the somewhat like. Uh, um, the interesting territory of the Japanese internment and how 
allegiances from one space to another could be kind of gamified in a way or, or could be seen as having certain choices that perhaps as a minority group, Asian Americans often, you know, being marginalized, part of being marginalized is having a lack of choice and lack of options. Mm-hmm. Um, but part, one thing you show is that there were options and there were ways of, of choosing and in a sense having to step back and see the kind of what, what gamers often call game sense, <laughs> having the sense of the game um, was very important to the writers and to the characters and the novels. And I'm, I'm not sure if you can, um, yeah, can you speak a bit uh, to that? I think this is um, in you connecting it to uh, the fact that there may be actually analog structures happening, uh, being talked about in two very disparate fields um, is really useful because for me, um, you know, if you take a book like um, No-No Boy, which uh, many people are very familiar with, but one thing that has always kind of dogged me about that novel um, and understanding it is the fact that um, Ichiro, the main character, who is berating himself, you know, for the entire um, novel about how he answered on the loyalty questionnaire, right, or how he um, resisted the draft, uh, he understands all the reasons that he uh, did it and all the good reasons that he would have um, for doing it and for battling this injustice and the injustice of being asked uh, to answer such a thing in the first place. But on the other hand, he still takes responsibility for it as if it were a choice. So to me, it was um, striking to think about, and this is where the game element comes in, is in game theory, and the idea that certain things have to be seen as a choice, even if they are, you know, what's called a Hobson's choice, which is, you know, you choose this or you choose nothing. Um, but that both the drama of that novel um, and the resolution to it both relies on this notion of seeing, seeing one's actions as choices, deeply unsatisfying, you know, dilemmas um, that are really no choice at all in some ways. But to reframe and re-narrate that as um, an option and therefore a, a sense of agency and therefore a sense of narrative resolution. And the same kind of fiction of choice, um, the freedom that we know is already prescribed, let's say, by a game designer, right? That you have to play within the rules, but it's through those rules um, that you find some kind of liberation. Um, that that kind of dynamic is one way in which I, I also think of Ludo Orientalism playing out by creating bridges between these um, between these ideas and how that kind of fiction of choice is one that runs through video games. Yes, where it's kind of crystallized and you can you can see it, um, but also continues to kind of bubble all around us um, in the social world that we navigate. I mean, as we we're talking about choice too, there is that distinction between choice and options, right? And you might know more about this, having like being a bit, uh, I think, better versed in, in, in game theory. But that for a lot of people of color and marginalized people, um, focusing more on options rather than choice is one tactic to um, kind of combat neoliberalism. Right? That there, there are these options presented to us, and like you said, if it's the choice of this or nothing, um, there's really yeah lack of a, a kind of free neoliberal kind of choice that we're envisioning. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, one thing that that goes back to what you were saying about a term like Asiatic attempting to both attend to, you know, where the gaze is coming from, but also refuse a kind of authentic or inauthentic binary. 
for me, thinking about something like strategic essentialism, um, as it's deployed generally, but especially, let's say, in an Asian American context and thinking about solidarity politics, um, it was useful to me to also see that as underwritten by a ludic impulse that is at once choice and sort of abnegation of choice, but choice um, in the name of a uh, sort of strategic flattening, um, which may seem to be a replication of the, the same kind of, you know, marginalizing refusal of choice coming from outside, but is in fact um, potentially a, a productive um, way of playing with those ideas. So this kind of actually connects to um, a critique that you uh, launched early in the book, but goes through it about the idea of transparency that I think is... Um, another point of, of connection um, between our work, but also that I think is really important as um, a takeaway from the book. So you draw first, um, and this is especially coming from Mimi Nguyen's work, um, to build your own idea of this open world empire, where you say, um, quote, truth, openness, and transparency become elastic terms deployed within networks of forgetting and red herring scandals. And then you connect this to discussions of games, which tend to fetishize transparency and the kind of, quote, openness of an open world. So I was wondering if you could elaborate a little on how these two parts of your title are connected. Again, this kind of goes back, you know, in a personal history to, to like the way I played games differently from other uh, people, which was, you know, trying to like seeing information as something to absorb and be able to incorporate and that the more that we know, the more information we have, the the better things can get, I suppose, the better we can better weigh our options, which of course right now um, in this kind of disinformation age is starting to um, crumble apart, right? Those ideas that we're, we have too much information and things are too transparent or, or something. Like I said in, the, in my introduction, some of the force of the arguments I make in the book have probably lost some of their esteem now just because we're much more critical of those things, I feel like, than when I started writing the book and maybe and when the book, uh, even when the book came out just earlier this year, <laughs> like, like COVID-19 and other um, events have made people even more kind of weary of um, the kind of information that we are absorbing. Um, and yet I think it feels like the answer to these issues is continues to be better transparency, continues to be, you know, more information. Um, and so we're still really unable to figure out how to think beyond that. Um, and these are, of course, issues that, you know, Foucault uh, readily took up um, many times in, in his uh, career. But I'm looking more at the history of sexuality and how he's trying to understand how pleasure and desire um, operate within that similar kind of dynamic where um, information, get, grabbing information that you believe is right, that you believe is authentic about other people has a kind of um, erotic pleasure to that. And what then kind of comes up as a form of difference for Foucault, which I argue is Asiatic because he's basing a lot of it on um, Japan and Iran and, and, and so on, even though of course, you know, he had met Saeed and he should have known better perhaps than to do this. Um, he's still seeing this as Asiatic, the, the inverse to that or the op opposing form of that, which is ours erotica or the, the way of, of erotics as more of touch and feel and, um, blurriness and uncertainty, um, and so on. And so I feel like, like that's something I'm trying to think critically about, but also, 
as with the Asiatic, play with um, and find some kind of joy in the way that this form of erotics um, emerges within Asiatic forms uh, in games. Um, and so I feel like that's uh, also part of both of our projects in trying to uh, decenter whiteness and to point out whiteness as the main audience, what it is, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so like in game studies, it's, it's probably the worst track record of that, um, of creating this imaginary form of the gamer who's, you know, male, uh, white, um, privileged and so on. When we know from statistics that, um, about half, almost half of all game people who play games are women. They're older. And I think 33 is the, now the median age for people who play games. Um, it's about 70% of, you know, United States and 67% of Canada. And, um, that the most people worldwide who play games are, um, in Asia or they're non-white and that it's a very diverse player base actually, and even just restricting to North America. Um, and it doesn't really, really shout those things until you start to compare it to other things like how in sports, people who watch sports, I believe last time I taught this <laughs> was that it was like 76% of men, uh, were sports watchers and literature is also very, very white as we've been learning for the past five years from the New York Times that continues to publish articles about how white literature, both on the writing and the publishing side and in the readership side are. Mm-hmm. Um, and games are actually more diverse and more, um, you know, equal uh, than these other forms. And yet they get passed off as being all about white men playing games. And that's especially weird when we read um, scholarship that's all about how white men play games, <laughs> because it's like you're leaving out most of the world and you're also leaving out, mo- you know, the the actual player base. And, and I think that's one thing that we both try and wrestle with is like, how do we take things like even like game theory, which is traditionally known as being by white people, is actually in some ways about whiteness. Right. And also about Asianness, uh, whereas and games as well, you know, in being about or Asiatic, it also has this function particular function for white people that it doesn't have or probably won't have for marginalized people of color in North America. Um, yeah. And you do this particularly, I think, through the way you read the model minority. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very like, it, it's a very obvious, inevitable argument that for some reason I hadn't thought really of before that I'm sure a lot of people had the same reaction, which is that this is not for us. Like model minority myth and logic is not really for Asian Americans, it's for white people. Like we somehow convinced ourselves that we are the main audience at some point for this, when of course that's not the case. And, you know, I I think you put it that the target is like black and brown people um, and indigenous people, and the audience is white people. And so like Asians are almost not even there (laughs) as part of the people who are supposed to consume this myth. Um, Yeah, I don't know if you can explain a bit of that, how you just... De-center or recenter whiteness where people didn't see it before. Yeah, I mean, to what uh, to the last thing that you said, I think that it's exactly right that um, you can think of the model minority as a way that seems to be centering Asianness as a means of erasing it. Um, and for me, um, you know, the the two things I thought that were very interesting in going back to early model minority discourse, of course, the first one, and other people have talked about this before, is that the term model minority doesn't quite have an origin that is easily traceable, right? Most people trace it back to this William Peterson article um, from, 
I want to say 62, but it actually may be a little bit earlier than that. Um, but in fact, nowhere in that article, which is um, focused specifically on the um, the experiences of Japanese Americans after the war, um, he doesn't actually talk about it like that. And in fact, he actually talks very little about uh, anybody except um, working class whites in relation to Japanese Americans, which is which is striking. Um, so for me, going back to that literature, I was struck first by how um, much of how the model minority myth in the way that we talk about it as some kind of monolithic thing has itself, in fact, evolved substantially over the years um, to, in some ways, kind of keep up with the technology as well as adapt to, let's say, um, different groups that have arrived. So that now we may think of it as associated with a kind of Silicon Valley um, sensibility, and particularly in terms of things like um, exceptionally good at math or science or computers, you know, engineering alongside. Um, and this is sort of where the, the supposed reappearance of the Asian American comes in um, alongside the specific occupational paths that are valued and encouraged um, by Asian American and especially immigrant parents. But looking back at the original model minority discourse or myth, if you want to, um, however you want to talk about it, it was so striking to me that, in fact, um, the language of exceptionalism, right, that Asian Americans were actually um, sort of biologically predisposed to excellence, especially in these um, these quantitative fields of math and science, medicine, et cetera, was not there at all. Um, in fact, much of the model minority myth, as, as we were saying earlier, was an attempt to find a kind of sociological explanation for why a group of people which um, on paper, and Peterson was using things like, you know, educational scores or GPA or college admissions, um, were not actually all that exceptional. So, you know, what was it um, that was somehow still allowing them to succeed? And the, um, the response, and this is something that uh, I kind of traced through the literature up until, you know, into the 70s, is about the language of risk that unexpectedly um, Asian Americans were the highest risk takers. But the way that risk was um, reframed here was not as a kind of negative, um, problematic risk in the sense of gambling in the late 19th century, but really about a kind of heroic risk taking. Again, a kind of um, borrowing from earlier sort of frontier language, but specifically the idea is that they're gambling on America, which in some ways is no gamble at all, right? Because it's such a fair place that uh, they're simply kind of investing in a truth that we all knew was out there, right? Which is what we now call the model minority myth, which is to say the myth is not about Asian Americans so much as it is about America, right? And it's inherent ideas of meritocracy. Um, the other thing is that, that I found interesting looking back at that material is this language of the model, um, so on the one hand, rightly, people have talked about the way that Asian Americans are used as models for other minorities, right, as well as specifically um, working class whites. But thinking about that model in a more playful sense, right, so I analyzed one of the images um, that was found in a sort of popular lifestyle magazine of this Chinese American family that is posed in very kind of all American ways. And on the, in, you know, the center of the image, um, is this little boy and, you know, his father or uncle or grandfather, um, and they're playing what looks like a board game, but upon closer inspection is actually putting together like a model, 
like a model airplane or something. And thinking about Asian Americans' relationship to the body politic as a model, not just as a um, as a form of emulation, but as a form of simulation, a very successful simulation um, that is virtual already, in, already envisioned to be virtual in ways that I find really productive about the way that, you know, you talk about Asianness becoming virtual um, later in the age of video games, uh, because it's, it's thinking of how this kind of ludic term uh, resonance of model actually may be a productive way to expand the way that we're thinking about model minority. So one of my favorite quotes in this book is one at the end of your chapter on loops. And you say, video games help us fathom how none of us are mere spectators who can discuss military intervention from the outside, that we are imperial anachronistic subjects who want to have our pleasure and critique it too. And I wonder if you could say about who are you thinking about as the we here? Um, So that's kind of a question about the relationship between scholars and um, players. But also, you know, how do you see this tension between wanting to have it both ways play out in video games? Yes, I get this from um, Bart when he's talking about the anachronistic subject, uh, which is basically his whole kind of point. Again, the importance of reading the entire book (laughs) um, and the pleasure of the text. He doesn't really get to it until halfway through and towards the end. But it turns out to be the whole point of the book in some ways that Um, You know, you can read a text in a way that's somewhat ideological where you're kind of buying into the ideology and just going with it. Or you can read it in a more, um, I suppose that the text itself matters a lot to him in this case. Um, But in the argument I'm making that you can play games or confront games that are more unsettling to the way that we envision race uh, ourselves and uh, our place in the world. Um, But one of, again, a part that hardly ever gets quoted when um, people talk about this text, about Bart, um, um, the pleasure of the text, is that he uses that to then talk about how the modern subject is anachronistic, how they can enjoy their kind of ideology <laughs> and then also enjoy the unsettlement of that ideology. Um, and I think it takes a kind of playful attitude for to, for games to do that, right? So that when you're confronting a text as a mode of pleasure and desire and play, um, there seems to be like more allowances for that text to um, to uh, give those kind of ideological pleasures, but then to also unsettle them as a form of bliss or a form of pleasure. Um, and so for me, like this is, again, I think going back to like the first person shooter and the way that people see the first person shooting games as inherently violent and masculine and militaristic and so on. And in some ways, like, you know, they do get equipped by the U.S. military for those purposes. Um, When actually those games, for me, it's not really about, you know, creating people who know how to shoot guns and so like that. And it's more about dividing acts of violence from, um, from the everyday forms of violence to militaristic violence. And that when we think of violence, that's what we think of. We think of somebody with a gun shooting somebody else or something like that. Um, or we think of drones having drone strikes. Uh, when actually the, the forms of, like, of uh, legitimate violence, as they're often called, happen through the gathering of information, right? how drones gather information in ways that racialize and create like, terrorist subjects and so on, that that itself is an act of violence. And in violence in the way that I think I'd say this in the text is like, 
one of the ways that I think games kind of play into these discourses is that they veil over violence as a particularly warlike act, as opposed to, um, um, and make it so as if playing a game, it could be a, a a more violent act because one is engaged in those representations, than actually doing violent things like giving money to a certain candidate or buying certain products without caring about the ethical um, implications of it and so on. And so that those acts of, of, of real violence of that actually have real world consequences don't get labeled as violent, whereas the acts of playing a video game and killing pretend people um, with buttons on a controller gets seen as one of the main forms of, through which violence replicates. And so um, that was like, that. that's what I'm trying to get at through that and how our desires and pleasures can also inform the way that um, us consuming that kind of information can have unsettling effects once um, we're kind of face-to-face with them. I think that that's really compelling. And another example of how what we're doing, what I think we're both doing is not just showing how, you know, functioning as a bridge between, let's say, Asian American studies or trans-Pacific studies or empire studies between those on the one hand and game studies on the other hand, but really through that bridge, through our books, allowing um, those insights, insisting on having those insights kind of flow forth into game studies in particular, um, the way that you just described the FPS is so important as a way of seeing games as wrapped up in what you describe as those kind of networks of forgetting those, um, you know, this fetishization of transparency um, and something that we've already talked about in terms of the model minority as a way of centering in order to erase, you know, a rendering hypervisible and invisible at the same time. We've reached the near end. For us, it's been two hours. Who knows how long it'll actually be when we, when we cut this. Um, but for now, we've reached the end of our podcast and we traditionally end by asking what the other person is working on. Uh, and what new things we can expect from you based on our conversation here. And so I will ask you first, uh, what are the things that you're working on now? How do they have to do with um, this project or not do with this project? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm currently working on a kind of a couple of projects. So the first is picking up where the book left off um, to kind of consider how this ludorientalism, this connection between Asianness and gaming is playing out in the realm of esports or competitive video game playing before an audience. Um, and specifically, I'm looking at that in the context of South Korea, but really tying it back to, and this is where it picks up from where the book left off, in terms of digital labor and racial capitalism, by thinking about the similarities between Chinese gold farming that we saw in chapter six of the of the race card, um, and thinking about how, how some of those structures look analogous in South Korean esports, despite very different responses um, to esports and to gold farming. And then, of course, you already know that we have some pieces in this area coming out in Verge Global Asia's that taught that touch on specific games and gaming also um, in the age of COVID. These are the anti-Asian racism. Um, and of course, the anthology that we are co-editing on this topic of Asian American gaming. Um, and then the second project that I'm working on is about IE, that canonical and controversial 1974 literary anthology published by Howard University Press. So I've really recently inherited the archive of IE and the big IE. And it contains some really fascinating insights into the editorial process that I hope can create new ways of talking about the history of Asian America, 
um, the stakes of Asian America as both a political and an aesthetic coalition. So I'm at work on that, but I also just finished co-editing a special journal issue with um, Waming Dariotis on this, and it's currently available online um, as an issue of Asian American literature discourses and pedagogies. And it's all pieces by Asian American writers, um, specifically speaking to the influence that IE had on them. So we have a really great roster of authors, but it includes people like David Mura, Garrett Hongo, uh, Brian Rowley, Adrian Sue. Um, and so this is kind of an initial um, foray into that project. Um, and what about you, Chris? Can you tell us a little bit about what you are working on now? Uh, oh my God, I didn't prepare for this question. Uh, I, <laughs> uh, um, I'm working on um, a multitude of things, but related more to uh, open world empire. I, like you, I'm like kind of thinking uh, in sequel kind of fashion of like, where where has this dropped me off and where am I going to get picked up for the next ride? And um, I guess every book is kind of a transitional book, right, to the next thing. And right now I'm writing about um, visual novels because visual novels are kind of the most Asiatic scene, like read as Asian forms of video games that have gotten very popular recently um, and are also often seen as quite uh, progressive, if not like queer, anti-racist, leftist and so on, at least in North America as opposed to most in places like South Korea and the Philippines, where they can actually be seen as quite conservative mm-hmm. um, and Confucian and so on, and the, the way that they think about gender roles. Uh, and so I'm, I'm working more on like uh, on game certain game genres and on how games uh, can be seen through a kind, not just a reparative lens, but a kind of performative queer lens as producing worlds. Um, and that each jo- game genre seems to, to produce its own world, um, where visual novels are one that's quite queer and, you know, um, accepting and on its surface anti-racist, though I would argue it's not actually that way. But most visual novels, um, even though they, they operate in a more post-racial form. Um, and then to look at other game genres that and try to understand the kind of affective and political racial worlds that are being produced um, through like in North America to North American audiences, particularly. Um, and so that's kind of, that's where I am at now. And that's a very like long ways off project. Wonderful. Great. So I want to uh, thank you, Tara, so much for experimenting with me on this dual interview and for being on the show today. I, do you think it went well? I think it was great. Thank you so much, Chris. I mean, the audience doesn't see that we took over two hours just chatting and I believe we could probably take more because yeah we can talk (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for for um playing playing with us and thanks to the listeners take care thank you for listening to my dual interview with Tara Fickle on her book The Race Card from Gaming Technologies to Model Minorities and on my book Open World Empire Race Erotics and the Global Rise of Video Games if you have any questions grievances or suggestions for books for this podcast you can message us at the New Books in Asian American Studies Facebook page. Thanks so much for listening.